Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 531. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information and to check out other shows on this network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Brooke Sellis. Brooke is a digital customer experience consultant, social media customer service management, and social media listening expert. She's founder and CEO of B Squared Media. She's the host of the Marketing Agency Show and is also the author of Conversations That Connect, How to Connect, Converse, and Convert Through Social Media Listening and Social-Led Customer Care. In this conversation with Brooke, we discuss the different types of conversations one can have as a brand with customers, the role of emotional disclosures, the relationship between empathy and trust, the social penetration theory, and the place of imperfection. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a wee moment, please go and drop in your rating and review because you know that's how these podcasts work. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Brooke Sellis, a middle-named person like me. <laughs> Great to have you on my show. In your own words, Brooke, how would you like to describe yourself? Oh my gosh. From a personal standpoint or a professional standpoint? Well, you tell me. <laughs> Professionally, I am an overachiever. Personally, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> my perfect day personally is a rainy day laying on the couch, binging something on Netflix. But that's mm. not me professionally. I'm very different. Mm. And how do you reconcile those two? I tell myself that because I work so hard in my professional life that I probably should really enjoy in my personal life, you know? But I guess I also ride horses in my personal life. So you could say I have a little bit of craziness in me. And that ties into the professional side because I'm an entrepreneur, right? So there has to mm -hmm. be like a little streak of wildness in there somewhere. <laughs> I love that. I'm about to um, do an interview with my old roommate from university who wrote a book called Winning with Horses. <gasps> Ooh. And, and so lots of uh, horses will be in, in the future. Um, so your, your book, Conversations That Connect, How to Connect, Converse, and Convert Through Social Media Listening and Social-Led Customer Care. Tell us why you decided you want to write this book. That's a great question. Um, I've owned my business for a little over 11 years now. And when I first started out, I thought I was going to be building social media strategies and delivering those to the client and walking away, right? Kind of like a consultant. And with my very first client, I delivered the strategy. And about two weeks later, they called me up and they were like, Brooke, we can't implement this. We, we just don't have the time. We don't have the resources. We're scared. We don't know what to post. And I realized very quickly that it wasn't that my customers needed a strategy because they knew they need, they need some help maybe with a strategy, but they really knew what they ultimately wanted and what they wanted to do and how they wanted to tie it to goals. What they didn't know how to do or didn't want to do was execute. And so I quickly pivoted to executing. And in that journey of executing social media management for people, they would start, the clients would start to come to me and say, you know, we love the content we put, you're putting out. We love, all, you know, all of the stats and the engagement and the followers. But is there any way you could cover us more time and respond quicklier to some of these requests that we get, like support, basically, social media support? 
And I said, well, yeah, because we're already, you know, we already do basic management, which is where we respond within the same day. So very quickly, I started to have clients ask about this thing that I didn't know what to call it, but ultimately it's, it's social media customer service. And so we ended up rolling it out about six years ago um, after we beta tested it for a year with one of our clients. And lo and behold, it became our, our biggest revenue stream and the thing we're most known for. Well, congratulations. I, I have a couple of thoughts that ruminate in my head as I listen to you. The first is a story about a, a chap running an enormous grocery store uh, that's based out of France called Carrefour. And he had uh, an Instagram account that he chose to sort of hide his identity behind uh, because he, he didn't want to be known for this within the company. Okay. And his passion was a black and white photography with his Nikon camera. And the funny thing is he ended up with more likes, more followers of that personal account, the black and white photos that he was taking than the entire company Instagram account, which leads me to the observation I have with my daughter, where I have, like my daughter, about the same number of followers. But anytime she posts something, she gets hundreds, if not thousands of likes, and I sputter to get 20, 30, 40, 50. And, and my observation, so the first one is about the personal element of it, mm -hmm. as opposed to the corporate side of things. And the second one is the, the and I'm going to say younger, but also female side of it versus the masculine side of it. How do you riff on that? I mean, I talk about this a lot in the book, but I think it's that we are, we're emotional beings, right? Literally, we are built on our emotions and our feelings. We're thinking beings separately from that, right? I would say that's a secondary and probably even way further down the listing that we are because some of us don't think at all. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing that we base 95% of our decisions on emotion and only 5% on logic and thinking, it's, it's still appalling to me that brands, corporations, typically are posting content that is devoid of any emotion or feelings. And people obviously are posting personal things, even with black and white photography. I'm sure there was a story that was being told. It, it invoked some kind of feeling or emotion. And that inherently is what I want companies and corporations to realize and change with their social media marketing. If you want, you know, the old adage of like, know, and trust, you can't get to know and you certainly can't get to trust without being vulnerable. I mean, those are the basic tenets of any relationship, including a brand to a customer. It was interesting about your this like, know, and trust that uh, you just said is um my almost smirk at how people operate on LinkedIn. <sighs> I don't know them, therefore I can't possibly trust them. And mm -hmm. why would I like them? And why would they connect if you don't know, like, or trust them? Well, because they're trying to sell you something. And I, this goes back to that branded content. It's it's steeped in, you know, from the book, what we call cliches and facts, not in opinions and feelings. And you cannot get, you know, I think the other, the other point I guess I should probably point out is brands view connection as a subscriber or a sign up or a download or a customer who's going to come in and buy something. But that's not connection. Connection by definition is two way, right? It can't be one way. So I think that's brands are getting that very first step of connection wrong. So how could they get beyond 
connection to knowing, which is, you know, some of the conversations that you would have back and forth to understand your customer better to conversion. You can't really get to conversion without connection and conversation. So you might have like, but you're not going to get to know and trust. So I I ran a large brand called Redkin when I was working at L'Oreal. And the idea that people want to connect with a brand um, is a struggle for me because Mm -hmm. I think people want to connect with people. Yes. And, And the challenge with that in a corporation where you work for a brand for a while and then move on means that in the end of the day, you're connected with a person who worked in a brand, but then who moved on. Mm-hmm. So you're left sort of strung out with the brand, not the person. And it becomes difficult to craft personal messages when the people who are typing the messages are rotating. Mm. And it feels like ultimately it, it's a the strongest need to have, if that's your situation, an agency to deal with your your communication as a brand, if you don't know how to create that sort of more personal, intimate touch and feeling as a brand through the people you are employing. Yeah, I think you're hitting on a great point there. I mean, there's a couple of real mismatches between social care and the way corporations operate. There's high turnover, especially at a lot of these like larger brands who do have the high volume of these conversations that would happen through social. Um, you know, they don't have the know-how, they don't have the skill set, they don't have the digital body language that's required a lot of times to handle things. And they work typically work Monday through Friday, nine to five when social mm-hmm. lives 24 seven, right? So that's a big mismatch. But I do think that's one of the things that our customers say they love about working with an agency. Um, ever since we rolled out this program, by the way, we haven't had one customer care client churn. Like that's how valuable the service is. And I think to your point, Part of that reason is because they have a pod of people who are dedicated to their brand, who intimately know the brand's tone, voice, all of those things, and know how to take the brand's values, tone, and voice and turn that into personal connection, conversation type content. Um, and they get a direct line to me. So I think I think they really appreciate that well. But that's why we want to stay boutique and we don't want to become a thousand person agency because if we did, we would also have that high turnover. So we're very selective about who we work with and we're very selective about the team members that work with us. So um, I think that's a big reason as to why it does work for some of these you know, larger brands. And yet the issue remains, Brooke, of the solid understanding of that tone, sense of humor, borders or frontiers that shouldn't be crossed. yes. Because, I mean, as soon as we're personal, you know, you can go, ha, 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 you know, giggle. <laughs> and, and is that, you know, whatever. Or, or blurt something out because you're being spontaneous. And, and, and yet, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company, uh, mm. that you, oh, you're laughing at my illness or you yeah. know, whatever. The, 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 the speed with which things can be taken poorly yes. means that it, you write too many protocols to fit into. Well, how do you sneak my personality into it? Yeah, that is that is probably the number one challenge. And I think we work with, you know, some from uh, pharma brands and some finance brands, you know, where there's a ton of red tape. And um, 
what I love about these brands in particular, especially our clients who we work with, hi y'all, um, mm. <laughs> they are so innovative in how they think about these things. They understand that they need to talk about their mission and their values as a brand so that they can attract customers who have similar values. Um, the example I gave in the book was Nike. You know, everybody thought they made a huge mistake with the Colin Kaepernick campaign. Everybody was saying, oh, you know, there, people were burning their Nikes, right, on in videos and saying they would never buy from Nike again, this, that, and the other. But Nike knew their audience, right? And what ended up happening is their stock price actually went up and they actually made more money. And I think that's one of the clues as to what you need to do if you want to get vulnerable and you want to try to go into this space with a personality as a brand is you have to intimately understand who your audience is. Because to the outside person, that seemed risky. But to Nike, they knew who their buyer was. And people who loved them, loved them even more for that and bought more shoes. They made more money and their stock price went up. What's interesting about your commentary about Nike is, is we're not talking about employee satisfaction. Because ultimately, for me, this is about congruency within your mm. culture and and great to have share price go up, sales to go up, customer clients who are buying the shoes happy. But in the end of the day, the individuals who are typing on the keyboard, who need to look in their selves in the mirror, that measurement of employee engagement is I often feel totally missing in the in the way people evaluate social media. Yes, that is a huge piece of the social care pie is EX or employee experience because you can't be that kind of brand online, right? Where again, it's like digital body language. If you don't have the buy-in of your frontline workers and your employees who are the ones who are out there really representing the brand, you know, the, the brand people aren't even the ones who are on the front line. So I think, you know, part of the pie is yes, employee, um, experience and making sure that you have the right people in the right roles and also knowing your audience intimately so you can create that kind of content. And then I think a third one, which is another hard one for companies to do, is treat social media like a playground. That is your sandbox to test ideas and test concepts and ask questions that bring that voice of customer data back to the people who aren't on the front line in branding and helps you make better um, you know, customer focused decisions based on the information that you're grabbing from, you know, basically the world's largest focus group that's free, which is social media. I love it. Uh, I always like to, to cite a uh, former CEO, Echel Ronan Dunn, who's an Irishman. And, and he was CEO of very large um, telephone company in the United Kingdom and then in the United States, Verizon. And, um, and he used to, even though busy, big job, spend half an hour a day, he said, every morning, listening to social media, because that got him in touch, got through the the, the chain of, of communications directly raw into the customer. And I think a lot of CEOs, or a lot of C-suite anyway, uh, are missing that. Yeah. So the, I the love the word raw, by the way. That's like the oh, perfect God. way to describe the data that we get from social. And I mean, it is raw. It's not pretty. Um but it can provide so much information. Anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, no. So then how do you how do you deal with uh, bad social media or uh, aggressive, trolly, mm. 
because uh, there's a lot of that. And, yes. <laughs> and you know, you, you see an individual with two followers and you just cast that aside. Uh, they have two million followers, uh, even though they're using expletives and, and, and unforgivable language. Do you have to deal with it? How do you, how do you mm. evaluate those types of nasty, bad news type of social media? Believe it or not, this is my favorite type of social media because I think understanding negative sentiment as a brand um, is a superpower, right? Because every negative event is an opportunity to turn that customer or that person into a stark, raving, loyal fan if you handle it correctly. Now, when we're talking about trolls, there are people who come to social media literally just to troll, right? They're not a customer. They're never going to buy from you. They have two followers or 2000 followers, whatever it is, but you can, you can kind of tell that you're a tro they're a troll. And a lot of social media experts will tell you block them, ban them, hide them, delete them. But what I would say from experiences, we've had some of our brands have customers who became trolls. I'm talking about posting every day, nasty stuff, you know, day after day after day after day after day. You can't block, ban, hide, delete a paying customer, especially for this luxury brand. So I think it's more about creating a troll policy and understanding what to say, how to say it, and then understanding when to disengage. So it's not necessarily, you know, blocking someone or banning them or deleting those comments because, it, by the way, like 86% of consumers especially the younger groups, look at brand conversation and weight it higher or equal to online reviews. So this is why it's so important to respond as the brand, even if it's negative. But back to the troll situation, you have to know when to disengage. And that should be part of your troll policy. At what point, if you're asking this person, hey, I'm so sorry you're having this experience. Let's go to DM. I'll get your phone number or whatever it is, and we'll get this worked out. And they won't go there. And they're still posting nasty grams, you know, every day. Then at some point you do need to disengage, but every brand has a different policy on how and when that happens, or at least the brands we work with. Yeah, they ought to have that policy. I don't they, know. If they should. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the at the top this notion of speed with which you respond, mm -hmm. and uh, for having worked in a large organization, I was seeing how back a long time ago because it's now been fourteen years since I left, but back in those days we could see that there was more and more impatience and need to respond quickly. So we're yes. talking about the, the early part of the, the century. And yet you need to have a, uh, a more congruent system of communication within your organization in order to be able to feed that. The example I used to give all the time would be someone complains or says something in this shampoo, it had this ingredient, uh, I'm allergic to it. Can you confirm it exists? something. Like mm. So you receive that you're the social care or social media, who, whoever it is, is receiving it. And you're like, well, I don't know. I'm just a marketing dude. Uh -huh. um, so then I, I send that message to the labs. Uh, so someone who's taking care of shampoos, and I finally find that person. And that person says, sorry, who are you? Yeah. I, I'm a marketing intern. I'm working for the summer and I've got this message. Well, I say, who are you? They don't even ask it. They look at it. They raise their eyebrows and say, I've got other things to do. Right. So your desire to get back to this client within four hours is ruptured because there isn't any sensitivity within the organization to what you are facing on the front line. 
Mm-hmm. And at, at times that might mean mobilizing a whole set of people that aren't necessarily correlated or reporting into you. So mm-hmm. how do you face that? Or what, what advice do you have when you are talking with a customer about this idea of rapid response? Yeah. So I have so many thoughts here because rapid response, unfortunately, customers are getting uh, more and more impatient about response time, especially on digital channels. So on social media, the gold standard is with, with, you know, under an hour response time, but really a lot of reports show they want it in less than 30 minutes, which is bananas. So the first thing I would say, and this is one of the thing we, things we do with every single one of our customer care clients is we create FAQ documentation. And we triage conversations as they come in. So that first time somebody asks about an ingredient, we don't we don't know, right? That would be labeled as a red. We, we couldn't solve it ourselves on the front line. And we would go through the proper channels to get that question answered. Once it's answered, we add that to the FAQ documentation. And the next time somebody asks about ingredients, we have an answer. So that's a green conversation. And it allows us to solve that problem right there on the front line at the first touch. So that's first contact resolution, which is a huge metric uh, for us to measure because what we find oftentimes is that we are able to resolve with the help of internal forces these questions right off the bat, right on social, which you know decreases re-escalations, meaning people who come back and complain again because they haven't heard something. And re-escalations, by the way, cost your business tremendously. Um, this is where a lot of a lot of customers will churn away from a brand if they have to re-escalate a problem or a complaint. Um, and part of you know, having that FAQ document and providing that information and constantly updating it um, involves buy-in from the top. You know, so we have usually someone sitting in a very top spot, whether it's the C-suite or maybe a VP of comms or HR or whatever it may be, um, marketing. Um, and that person has a line to the top, top. So we can pretty much go to almost the top with this, you know, red situation, this ingredient question, and they can make sure that we get an answer as quickly as possible. And then once we have that answer, like I said, it goes into the documentation, which the team all has access to. And we just get faster and faster with being able to solve problems directly on social very quickly. My name is Cindy Burnett. And each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler free about their books. So you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. So so you talk about it almost like the red hot, red telephone, red hotline. Yes, allows you to bypass. <laughs> exactly. But I, I do think that this is typical of the type of problems that you might have on the front line. You, you want Absolutely. to have with intent, you know, you're intentional, you're authentic, genuinely wanting to get back to them quickly. And if you write a message like, well, Hey, listen, within 30 seconds, 30 minutes, hi, listen, I saw your message about this ingredient. We'll, we'll get back to you. And then you have to make a commitment. We'll get back to you within. Yes. <laughs> but it's yes. not within your power to dictate that especially right. if you're an agency. So I see that as a a troublesome, irksome area that requires maybe this red hotline, but also a, a strong integration within the organization so that people aren't saying, who's this Brooke person? Oh, yeah. 
No, I'm with you. Uh, you know, the financial client that I talked about, again, they're so innovative. I, I love using this as an example because <laughs> the uh, the negative sentiment around financial brands on social is pretty, pretty ugly, right? They don't usually fare very well. Um, but they have us plugged into their VP of comms, their VP of HR. We talk to everybody on their social, well, it's called member social care for them because they have members. Um and everybody on their marketing team, everybody on their paid media team, we have our hands in so many different departments within the business to try to help be the middle, like a, like a spoken, spoken wheel kind of model so that they're not operating in silos. We help them become, you know, that middle of the wheel so that we can all move forward together. And that's the ideal setup and situation. Not that everybody sees it that way or does it that way. But honestly, those are the brands that we see making win after win after win when they don't, you know, operate in silos. Brooke, I wanted to circle back on something you had said earlier about uh, the nasty people and your favorite thing. I wanted to give you a little hat tip to our my friend, uh, Jay Bear, who you oh. know, and his yes. book, Hug Your Haters. Yes. Uh, something that Jay would um, subscribe to. Yeah. He actually has time to win report that came out recently. And now he's, he's actually going to release a, a, a short book. He says is amazing. If you're not sure how you're doing on timing as far as, and this is, he goes beyond social, right? Our focus is so, social, but he talks about email in person, all these different things. Um, and he also hits heavily on uh, re-escalations and how much they cost business and looking at all of those areas and kind of gives some tips for becoming faster, not just on social, but email in person, all of those things. So yeah, I love him. He always has amazing, amazing content and is such a fabulous researcher. So I'll be sure to put that in the show notes. Um, so you, this book is entitled Conversations That Connect and conversations is a topic uh, near and dear to my heart. It's the subject of my next book. Ooh. And I, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've written 350,000 words, but I hope the book will be a little shorter. Um, <laughs> It's a Otherwise, novel. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's an encyclopedia almost. Um, but conversations, obviously, uh, there are many different types of conversations. But what type of conversation do you subscribe to that makes these emotional connections and builds community? What, what, what how do you define? Is it topic intensity, vulnerability? What, what is it that makes for conversations that connect? Yeah, so I'm going to get nerdy here just for a second, um, but I have to give the backstory to, to answer your question. But essentially, I did my undergraduate thesis on the social penetration theory. Horrible mm -hmm. name, brilliant concept. Uh, but essentially, back in the 1970s, there were these two social psychologists, and they came up with the way humans connect with one another. How do we build relationships? And what they said uh, was it was basically based on the level of disclosures we give to one another. And those four levels of disclosures are cliches, does nothing to move the relationship forward, facts, eh, you know, fine, but really isn't, again, moving the relationship forward. And then opinions and feelings are the two final and deepest layer of how we build trust and build relationships with people. And so my thesis looked at social media and said, hey, can does, does this apply to social media? and to brands and people. And what I found was, yes, as long as brands were using opinion and feeling content, 
which as you know, most brands are not. Most branded content, you can run out to social media right now and see exactly what I'm talking about is cliche and fact. But the brands who share opinions and ask for opinions, who share feelings or values and ask for those feelings and values back, have the biggest audiences, have the most brand conversations happening on social. And I can't speak for every brand and only my clients, but have a lot more conversions that actually come from organic social media. So I've written about machines having feelings, and (laughs) that doesn't seem to be an acceptable thought yet. And of course, I, I would concur. Brands, do brands have feelings? I think they do. Well, good brands do. I think brands who get it and who understand that whole fact that we're emotional beings and that 95% of our decision-making is based on on emotions know and start with, hey, this is our brand and these are our core values. Patagonia is a great example, right? They are an outdoor apparel brand. They care about the planet. And a lot of their content talks about their feelings and their opinions on climate change. And this aligns so well with the Patagonia customer because the Patagonia customer is an outdoorsy person. They love being in nature. Because they love being in nature, they probably respect nature and really care about the planet. So Patagonia is constantly aligning those feelings that they have as a brand about the planet with their consumers And they meet in the middle, you know, through purchase, but it's more than a purchase. I mean, if you go look at some of the customer stories for, for Patagonia, it's, it's, they align with that brand on a bigger way than just a purchase. You know, they're not going there because of the price or because of the materials. It's because of the brand values. So I've, I've uh, had the chance to speak to some folks there and, uh, but, and there are some competitors Mm -hmm. and my sentiment is that and I don't know if that's an appealing, uh, an opinion or a feeling. <laughs> Brooke, opinion. My, well, well, it could be both. My, we'll see. <laughs> my, exact, my sentiment is that the, the, in, the Yvon Chouinard, who was the founder of Patagonia, is the reason why that's credible. Mm-hmm. There's a personalized or a personality that is a person that speaks as a public figure and represents those feelings. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of corporations hide behind subterfuge of, you know, the CEO. I have more time. I don't have time to do this. I have to talk mm-hmm. to my shareholders. Uh, I'm doing other things strategically. And the idea of expressing feelings and opinions, well, if you're not the founder, how do you know that these are the right feelings uh, that you want to do? In other words, you start having filters that suggest the feelings you need to have as opposed to having the feelings that you should have. It's funny that you asked this question because this is an ongoing conversation with many of our clients. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, when we, you know, a few years ago, we're going through uh, all of the protests and Black Lives Matter. Several of our brands said they wanted to post in support of Black Lives Matter. And obviously, we wanted to support them in whatever their mission or value was. But for some of the brands, we knew that it was more of a gesture than an action. And we discouraged them from making those posts unless they could tie it to an action as the brand, right? We support Black Lives Matter and we're doing this thing or giving this donation or whatever it was, whatever that piece of action was 
along with that support of Black Lives Matter. The ones who had action tied to their messaging did great. The ones who went against our advice and posted without action got a lot of backlash. So I think you have to understand as your brand, whether it's the CEO or the C-suite or whomever it is, you have to understand and know what your company values are. Is it you know, pride? Is it Black Lives Matter? Is it what is it that you stand behind? Is it saving the planet? Is it, you know, providing clean water? Um, Whatever those core values are, it has to come from the top. You have to be steadfast in what it is, and then it needs to trickle down within the organization, which is hard. I know that's not easy, but um, but I think we're going to see, especially as the younger groups come into more buying power, that the brands who don't adopt this kind of mentality of their brand having values and and opinions and tying those values and opinions to their customers will have a very hard time. And and tying them to the behaviors, the actions as well. Yes. The challenge in these types of... I'm going to give you an example of... I remember reading in a book about how there was a uh, big corporation that... uh, was doing very sort of so-so in social media. And then one day they hired an intern and she was particularly funny and snarky and got lots and lots of likes and, and retweets. And, and everyone said, oh my gosh, you know, social media is great. Look at that. Actually, it's bringing in new, new customers and everything. Then the social media intern left. <laughs> and, and that kind of a personality you can't make up. Yeah, right? no. Snarky yeah. or sense of humor, let's define sense of humor. What what do we mean by that? How are we going to replace that? Yeah. And and so they got confused Mm. uh, in terms of the metrics. And when it comes to leading that voice, I have the same kind of quibble around agencies doing social media posts for, on behalf of a, a personality, which ultimately means it's kind of removed from the person. Yeah. In that case. And so how does that become credible? How does that become, how is that an authentic way to render personal and engaging, connecting uh, for a brand? It's such an insightful question because I think, um, and, and not to knock any agency or person who's in social, but I think that's what happens a lot of time, right? The brand's like, we don't know what we're doing. We know we have to have a present. Just, just, just go out there and, and make it happen. Right. And unfortunately, just like your example, what happens is that person doesn't know the tone and the voice of the brand. They're becoming the tone and the voice of the brand. And the brand is going to then what? Adopt this person's tone and voice? No. So for us, it's really about understanding and going through. We go through a lot of exercises with the brands on what their tone and voice is and how to convey that through language, basically typing, you know, do you use exclamation points? Do you use emoji? Do you, what you, what is your tone? If you could pick it, you know, three descriptive words, what would it be? Professional, but playful, but, uh, you know, a little bit sassy. Okay. We can play with that. Right. But we would never (laughs) just come up with content without that tone and voice information and exercises, because ultimately if they do leave us, um, or they go in house or whatever the situation is, they need to be able to continue forward. My job is not to, you know, find clients who want me to be there forever. 
It's to help them, you know, fill the gap in a uh, strategy and tactic area that can be very difficult for brands to meet. And if we can provide them with all of this crazy good information that is tied to their tone and voice and is tied to their values, then if we go away, they should be able to carry that on very easily. Jumbling my questions here, because I I wanted to get into the disclosures, the emotional disclosures of brands, but you said 95% of our decisions are made through emotions. Mm -hmm. Yet there are presumably a large number of questions like, uh, is this, what's the price for this uh, object? Mm-hmm. $2.99. Fact. Fact. Yeah. And, and so when you look at those type of, of questions, you're not going to inject emotion into the answer or, or, or do you, do you suggest mm-hmm. according to your tone, oh, it's $2.99 with an emoji or is, how do you deal with that? Which <laughs> looks like a purely factual element. Are you trying to inject emotion yes. even there? Yes. Yeah, we do. For the brands, obviously, who allow us to do that. We work with a um, a brand that uh, does a lot of like craft. They, they, uh, they manufacture crafting supplies, right? So crafters are using their products. And so if a crafter comes along and says like, hey, how much is your label maker? And we'll say, you know, it's $29.99. And, or, you know, and have you seen this guide on all the cool things you can do with a label maker? Or we'll say something like, what are you planning on doing with it? Because we have a lot of tips we could provide for you, you know, with like a little winky face or something, if we're allowed to do that. And if we are allowed to do that, ultimately the response is better because what happens if we ask that question, we we usually get a response and then we can respond back and say, oh my gosh, you're organizing your kitchen. Oh, you know, here's like, here's our post on like how to organize the kitchen um, with your label maker, just like Marie, uh, what's her name? Marie Con. Con- Anyways, the organizer, I can't think of her name right now. Um, and people love that, right? Then they've got this feeling that we're like not only friendly and helpful, right? So there's two tones of a voice right there, helpful, friendly, but they know that they feel safe in the environment of social to come back to us if they have a question or a problem, right? We're presenting ourselves as a safe place to go. And unfortunately, like some of the bad examples I shared in the book, Social is not a safe place to go for a lot of brands' customers. And that's why I think a lot of brands are going to do poorly, you know, if not now, soon, because they're not providing that place for people to go. And and again, these younger generations use social more and more to research and shop and ask questions. Well, th- this feels like a paradox, because if you are suggesting to a brand to share emotions and feelings, that is putting yourself out there as opposed yes. to cliches and facts yes and and putting yourself out there um well invites risky business yes where where you you're gonna say hey listen this is my political stance i'm for i'm against mm-hmm. certain stance or whatever abortion then uh that so that's my feeling well that can have a whiplash you know for the people who are against oh, yeah that. yeah and, and so safe, but difficult. Yes. Well, here's my here's my point to that dissolution, you know, like the dissolution of that relationship because they don't agree with your value or they don't, you know, that you, you know, you support Roman's rights and they do not. That is not a bad thing. You are only removing the people who are not going to be long term loyal customers 
when you present the value of, hey, we support women's rights, period. The people who come through and say like, oh my gosh, you know, how could you, how could you be like this? Blah, blah, blah. They're not your long-term customer. They're, they don't, they're not sharing the values that you share. And so dissolution and pushing the wrong people away while bringing the right people closer is not a bad thing, even though brands would see it that way. But follower account is a vanity metric. Who cares if they, if they don't follow you, if they're not going to buy? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is sort of an influence with a million followers who happy to retweet because he finds yeah. your sense, or she finds your sense of humor funny. Yeah. Um, this bring goes back to this point of the employer or the employee rather, because um, you, you get, we've gotten into a situation for a lot of legacy companies who have employees, they now have to have an opinion, but they didn't have that opinion or that value stated and claimed as a recruitment device mm -hmm. or policy at the beginning. So now we're coming into this and this is our stance on this, this hot issue. Well, you have to, evaluate how the employees are yeah you want you have to make a stance but there are going to be employees yes. who might not be on the same page a thousand if percent you're coming in late in the game and i think that that is also one of the reasons why so many brands struggle to have quote unquote an opinion or feeling because mm -hmm. they've existed before they might not have shown anything previously and you know ceos turning in you know, the rotation coming in rotation of employees means that they really never had a stable idea on this thing. They were just trying to get the product out and selling it. Yeah. No, that happens. Um, we had a client where they were getting pushed from a lot of their employees to support Pride publicly as a company. And while they wanted to support Pride and they had no you know, reason not to, they really already had those core values in place. And unfortunately, it didn't include Pride. So what they did was they formed some internal committees and support groups and activities for those who wanted to support Pride within the company. But they still decided that, look, because this doesn't tie to a core value of ours that is going to be public, we won't be supporting it publicly. And I think that makes sense. I mean, you can't, you know, if you were to, if you're a large brand and you have thousands and thousands and thousands of employees, you're, they're going, ultimately your employees would want you to support every single thing they support. And that's not possible for a brand. So you have to know and stick to whatever those core values are. Make sure you document it, disseminate it, right? Make sure it becomes a part of that internal communication with your employees. But then also you can do things that boost EX or employee experience like forming that internal committee to have pride events and support pride within the company without necessarily having to go onto social or other platforms to lift that community up. Well, I like that point, how you insist on, you know, you can't support everything because I think this is the no nature of strategy. Um, you, we, well, I couldn't help but laugh at the comment you made about Kerastars, which where I worked before, but the, the, in the time that's limited Sorry. to us, uh, yeah, no, 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 very good. Um, <laughs> you, you do need to be responsive. Um, a couple of comments for you and I just react. Uh, one of them is FAQ. Uh, the problem with FAQ that I've seen is that the F doesn't usually stand up. So whenever I go on an FAQ, it's not actually my, my question is never there. Mm -hmm. And, and I can remember absolutely writing questions and answers to the questions we wanted them to ask us yes. and, and hiding away <laughs> from actual questions. Yes. <laughs> how does one, how does one, you know, the, 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 there's an element of data sorting and understanding what actually are the true questions and, you know, like the hug your haters and yes. within that true insights. 
how much uh, of that, how do you deal with the FAQ story? Like that. Oh my gosh, that is a huge, huge, huge part of what we do. So typically when we onboard a customer care client, they give us their FAQs that they have. <laughs> and what we find very quickly, to your point, is that we might get a few questions that fit into that box that they've already created, but most of them do not. And that's why we start that FAQ repository of you know all of the co- comments and questions uh, that we get. So we use a lot of tagging and labeling of the conversations that are happening on social. And we also use social listening because what a lot of brands are missing the boat on is people, you know, you and you and I are on social. We both bought um, Karastas and we're having a conversation about them, but we're not actually tagging them. Right. So if we're not tagging them, that information and that data, this this conversation that we're having about how they don't respond or we didn't like this product or whatever it is, isn't coming to light for them and therefore can't be added to the FAQ documentation and therefore leaves them hanging or leaves them short in some way. So we use social listening, we use tagging, and ultimately that little box of an FAQ becomes not even a box. There are no walls. There is no spoon, as they say in the matrix, right? It's constantly being iterated and updated based on that triage of red goes internal. We get the answer back. It becomes green. We get a lot of what we call yellows, which is where it's not like a, oh my gosh, somebody needs to handle this person's complaint right now, but it's like a weird question, kind of like your ingredient question. That might've been a yellow, right? Because you're not saying, I'm mad or I'm angry. You're just curious. Like, what is this? And we didn't have it in the FAQ document. So it's not a green. Yellows always turn into greens because we end up getting that information, right? The more greens we can answer, the faster we get with that first contact resolution, which is huge because that's where you win. As Jay would say, that's where you win on time to win, right? Because you're responding quickly. And especially when it's acquisition questions, like people who want to buy from you and they're asking those research questions on social, if you're the first person to answer it with not only the answer, but some other helpful information or a promo link or whatever it is, you're going to nine times out of 10 be the brand that they buy from. Yeah, I do like that way you expressed the difference between acquisition and retention. That was, a, I felt, one of the one of the strong ahas for me in your book, Rook this idea of, of tagging everything and, and in particular sorting between retention and acquisition. Yes. Yes. I will say right now, like this is, <laughs> I am not one to uh, gatekeep information. If you could just start tagging all of the conversations that you get on your social channels, either retention or acquisition. So that means if somebody's coming to you post-purchase with a complaint or a question, Retention. We're trying to retain this customer. If somebody's coming to you and they're saying, um, hey, is your printer Alexa compatible? That's a an acquisition question. Tag it as such. Because if you can show the C-suite <laughs> how much acquisition is coming through your social channels, you can start to prove the value to, of social to the C-suite. Because a lot of people in, the, in those roles still don't understand the value of social. Uh, last question, um, uh, Brooke, and it's something I talked to you about before we hit the record button because it kind of irked me somehow, um, <laughs> where you you put intimate before personal in your in the, um, the social penetration theory, so-called. Uh, you had, um, so there's uh, superficial, intimate, personal, then core, mm-hmm. as I saw it. And I was just bemused that intimate should come be considered a a more superficial component than personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, personal 
And the most intimate things are much more hidden and confidential than just personal information. If I make an example, um, you know, uh, I'm married to a woman, right? That's a personal thing. It's nothing to do with my professional element or superficial. Mm-hmm. It's I'm married to a woman and it's a great woman, 28 years. That's not intimate. That's just personal. Right. But right. intimate would be telling you something more important uh, about health or about, you know, uh, troubles or, or you know, yes. feelings and opinions about it. <laughs> yes. No, I don't disagree. Um, that is how it was presented in the theory. So I, I tried to stay true to the science, uh, the psychology, sociology, whatever you want to call it. Um, I tried to stay true to what they said. I don't necessarily agree with that either. I think it should be flipped. Um, but ultimately, I think what what we're trying to say is, you know, how can you invoke feelings? And we also said, like, what's the difference between feelings and emotions? Emotions are sensations in your body, right? It's your chemical reaction to how you're feeling. Feelings are actually generated from our thoughts about those emotions. So when I say solicit feelings, you're making someone think about something to then have an emotion in their body or a sensation of joy or anger or whatever it may be. Does that make sense? So it's almost like, the uh, the feeling is the label of the emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and the emotions a sensation. Like how you feel when you're happy may be different than how I feel when I'm happy. And we know people have different <laughs> different types of anger and different types of sadness. Um, but yeah, it, you know, the feeling is the label for the emotion. Lovely. Well, Brooke, (laughs) we have come to the conclusion of this little chat, lovely chat, uh, conversations that connect. How can people connect with you, get your book and uh, any other links you'd like to share with us? Absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn these days. That's where I'm hanging out the most. Um, Unfortunately, Twitter used to be my favorite platform, but it's it's a bit of a dumpster fire right now. So I'm hanging out mostly on LinkedIn. You can uh, look for Brooke Sellis, B-R-O-O-K-E, last name S-E-L-L-A-S. And um, the book can be found on Amazon, Conversations That Connect, or just go to bsquared.media. And we've got actually chapter one for free there if you want to try before you buy. Nice. Hey, Brooke, thank you so much. Great great to have you on. Say hi to Ken and uh, be in touch. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 or more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is the reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of the
welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.